Hello, my name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. I am here with my colleague, Tracy Gardner, who is the Vice President of Our America's Lubricants Business. Tracy will share with you a short story about a leader whose simple and kind act had a long-lasting influence on her career and how she leads others. Eighteen years ago, I was far from home, had an amazing job, and was pregnant. My husband and I had moved from New Zealand to Singapore for my career opportunities five years earlier. Working for Chevron in the Caltex operations in the early 2000s was just an incredible experience. I was opening retail stores in Cambodia, selling lubricants in Vietnam, and growing our service station networks in countries as diverse as Philippines, Hong Kong, and South Africa. Now, 20 years ago, there were also very few women working in positions like mine. When I became pregnant, I heard colleagues questioning my ability to balance becoming a mother and getting my job done. But there was this leader in Chevron, and he wasn't even my boss. And he took the time and effort to send a baby gift with a lovely note, a handwritten note, telling me how happy he was for me. That someone I didn't even work directly for would take the time to show a personal kindness had a very large impact on me. From then and today, the importance of kindness is central to the way I run my business. Kindness is an expectation in my teams, one we talk about explicitly. Being kind does not diminish high performance, it supports it. It might take a few minutes to think about how your words may land, to take the heat out of a tough trade-off, or support an employee in a moment of personal need, but it adds immensely to our team's ability to collaborate and deliver results. We perform better as a team because we treat each other kindly and with respect. Leading from the heart doesn't make us soft, it makes us stronger. Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. We've all been conditioned from an early age to believe that one day we'll reach a moment of arrival. We believe that once we have success and wealth and status, we'll be happy. And for a lot of us, no matter how much we've achieved or acquired, we still don't feel as satisfied or as fulfilled as we expected we would. Many people today feel lost and angry because they paid the money, went to college, took out the loans, showed up every day, only to find that they were no closer to the sense of joy and sense of fulfillment that they've been chasing for years. So my guest today, Harvard Medical School visiting scholar Sunil Gupta, says most of us have always believed that our outer success in life would inevitably lead to inner well-being, despite history showing this has never really been the case. So today we're going to discuss the importance of finding meaning and purpose in our lives and to recognize the importance of helping the people we hire, lead, and manage clarify the work experiences that make their hearts sing too. In the ancient Hindu book of living, the Bhagavad Gita says each of us has a dharma, a sacred duty, a purpose, or a gift, something uniquely assigned to us by the universe. Most of the world's spiritual traditions agree that we're meant to not just discover our callings, but to employ them in our lives to create the personal fulfillment that we all seek. 
in his brand new bestseller, Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in What You Do, Gupta reminds us that the essence of who we are must be discovered. What are the unique talents and activities that make us feel passionate, energetic, and fully aligned to what we were put here to do? Running coach Joe Vigil once studied top African long-distance runners, runners who tended to dominate Olympic podiums and win the most races. And his key finding was that the winningest runners seemed to be more focused on the joy of racing than on winning. And that discovery really reconfirms that a sense of purpose tends to bring out our very best work. At a time when so many people seem really unhappy in their jobs, or at the very least, unfulfilled by the work they do, I've invited Sunil to join us to explain how we ourselves can return to who we are at our core, and to advise us on how we can reconnect our work to our own personal sense of well-being. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Sunil. Good to be here, Mark. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. First of all, I really enjoyed your book. And as I was putting my questions together, I thought, okay, I need to kind of connect it to the broader ambition of leadership. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to frame it up with this question, and then we're going to get deeper into the real book. So if you look at job satisfaction studies around the world, employee engagement metrics, which honestly haven't improved in a generation. And the fact that 120 million Americans quit their job in just the last two and a half years, mm. there are just so many signs that there's something wrong in the way that we lead people in our workplaces. And your book doesn't specifically address this, as I mentioned, but I'm pretty certain that you have some highly informed thoughts on what might be the causes and solutions. And so I'd like to start there. Yeah, I think at its heart, the book really is about what you're talking about, which is this innate dissatisfaction that I think so many of us have. But I think the thing that really kind of strikes me is that I think the number one predictor of our mental health for the vast majority of us is our job. It's our work. There was a study that was published recently about how the person who has potentially the biggest impact on our mental health isn't our therapist or our doctor or even our spouse, but our boss, it's the person who's leading us. And yet the vast majority of us are dissatisfied with what we do each day. And it's wreaking havoc, I think, on our collective mental health. I think we're experiencing right now what I sometimes call an emptiness epidemic, where we feel this sense of emptiness when we're showing up at our jobs. And I think there's a sense of purpose that so many of us are looking for right now. But the problem is that how do you fit purpose into an incredibly busy life? You know, when you have bills to pay, when you have back-to-back -back meetings, kids to drop off, aging parents, purpose can sometimes be the kind of thing that feels like one more thing on an impossibly long to-do list. So I think the question that we are sort of diving deep into is what are the everyday things that we can do to align ourselves, who we really are? with what we're doing each day. And as it turns out, this is not a new conversation. It's something that's been had for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to the roots of this philosophy called Dharma, which was really about aligning who we are with what we do and applying it to today's fast-paced, almost dizzying world. So you've articulated this beautifully and sort of set me up for the natural progression of what I'm really interested in. 
I want you to pin down something you said, which is that there's just this great dissatisfaction that people are experiencing every day. Yeah. What's your take on that? I mean, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I just want to know your point of view. Yeah. Part of it, I think, is that I think we can find ourselves caught in what Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar calls the arrival fallacy. And the arrival fallacy is this notion that at some point in time, we're going to hit enough wealth, enough status, you know, enough achievement where it will all have been worth it. We'll all sort of feel like, okay, we're now fulfilled internally. And yet the fallacy of it all is that that goalpost continues to move over and over again. And eventually it becomes sort of about getting the next deal, the next client, the next car, the next, the next thing. And it doesn't quite last. It doesn't give us that feeling of joy that we expect to sort of be with us for a while. We're quickly moving on to what's next. And when that happens, we find ourselves on a hedonic treadmill where we're constantly chasing the next thing and satisfaction becomes very short lived. The essence of Dharma is really about defining the difference between outer success and inner success. And if outer success is status, status, wealth, achievement, then inner success is, it is fulfillment. It is joy. It is meaning. And the point of it isn't to say that one is better than the other, and it's not to shame having nice things in your life or wanting to achieve things. I think hitting goals is very, very important. But it's more to kind of, I think, switch from this single engine that we have right now, which is that our fuel in our lives is being sort of dictated by these outside achievements, and switching to a dual engine system mm. where every day, each day, we are finding satisfaction not just from the achievements that we make, but from the actions that we take. So another thing that struck me when I was reading your book was that I just couldn't help think that people are longing for this information, like a guide to connecting, as you said, their outer success to their inner success. And you mentioned the word dharma, but we haven't really framed it up yet. So, yeah. But there's also this spiritual idea that we all come into the world with a what you call a sacred gift, a purpose, a calling, special talents. And that you say they've effectively been assigned to us by the universe, which I think, you know, sounds a little bit woo-woo, but it, it's not. I mean, in the sense that we've all met people and we go, that person was just born to do this. <laughs> or we've met people that we think they're just like not aligned to who they really are. Like they're not doing the work that they're supposed to. Yeah. So frame it up for us. What's Dharma? What's purpose? How do we yeah. unite our outer success with our inner purpose? I first learned Dharma on a porch in New Delhi. It was my grandfather's porch. And I was just a kid when he first sort of taught me about Dharma. And the way he taught me it is by pointing to an Indian flag. And if you look at an Indian flag, you see the colors green and, and orange and white. And at the center of the flag is a wheel. And that is the wheel of Dharma. And he explained Dharma to me back then as your essence. It is sort of who you are. And when you are expressing that essence, you come alive in a brand new way. You feel confident. You feel creative. You feel lit up. And I think we've all experienced that before. But I think most of us have also experienced the opposite, which is that when you're not expressing your essence, you can feel lost. You can feel depleted. You can feel disengaged. 
And back to how we started this conversation, that so many people are feeling that way right now. You know, less than a third of us in the workforce right now feel engaged with what we do each day. And the vast majority of us are looking for our next job, our next thing. The data shows us that within six months of landing in that new thing, we're going to be picking our head up and thinking about what's next again because we're just not happy again. So it's this constant sense of dissatisfaction. Dharma is really about, you know, the equation is pretty simple. Dharma is equal to essence plus expression. And the big idea behind Dharma is that we don't need to take big sweeping actions in our life necessarily to live our Dharma. It can happen through little things. Michelangelo would see a block of marble and he would say the sculpture is already inside. All I have to do is chip away the layers that are bearing it. And the same is true for your dharma. It's already inside of you. It's probably something that you've experienced before. It may have been when you were a kid. It may have been last week. But oftentimes our dharma, this essence about us, gets buried with all the other things we have going on in our lives, with priorities, with expectations, with judgments. Oftentimes it's other people's priorities, expectations, and judgments. And it hides us from ourselves. And so we begin the book with really sort of what are the chisels that we can use to start to carve away and liberate this part of ourselves. And there's little things that we can do. In chapter one, I tell the story of a project manager named Mila, and she's working inside a big company. And she sort of comes to this realization that her calling was to be a teacher. And she sort of explores the path of what would it take to be a teacher and realizes that it's not going to happen for her. She's a mother of two. Her family relies on her healthcare insurance. They rely on her salary. And it's not the kind of thing that's practical for her to leave her job, leave her salary, and go become a teacher. And so she feels trapped in this path that doesn't actually feel like hers. And then one day, she sits down with a mentor. You know, Mark, I feel like you've mentored so many, and you might be appreciate this, but she sits down with a mentor, and this mentor asks her a very like simple question. And the question is, what is it specifically about teaching that you love? What is it specifically about teaching that captivates you? And as Mila went below the title of teacher and into what she really loved about teaching, what she realized is that she loves helping people grow. Like, that's her thing. That's her essence. And yeah, teaching was one way to express that essence, but there were many others as well. And she ends up making a pretty small shift to a training role inside her own company, in fact, inside her own department. And once she makes that shift, everything changes. You know, she becomes a rising star in her group. Her kids see their mother come alive. You know, she wakes up with enthusiasm and energy and a job that she used to dread. And I think the myth is that sometimes we have to abandon our life in order to transform the way that we live. But oftentimes our dharma is right within our reach. You're saying we tend to have too narrow of a description of it. I want to teach. The assumption is we teach in schools. I can't teach in a school, therefore I'm unhappy. And you're saying, no, break it down to the core, which is that you can be teaching people, coaching, elevating, developing people every day in the work that you're already doing. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. I think we get stuck in an occupation mindset right? Where we believe that our calling is really a job title. But if we can challenge ourselves to peek underneath the hood of our dream job, 
something that we aspire to have, but maybe even feel like it's unobtainable and start getting into the essence of what that thing is. We might find that we can express that essence through our day to day, every single day doing exactly what we're doing right now. So going back a little bit, you effectively said that people are unhappy in their jobs, looking for jobs, getting new jobs, six months later, looking for new jobs and then starting the cycle all over again. Yep. This is misery. And as also listening to you, this teacher, quote unquote, figured it out on her own. She understood that, wait a minute, I can actually apply this in a work setting and, and maximize my potential that way. I'm interested in hearing your description of what we individually can do to make ourselves happier in the jobs that we have mm. vis-a-vis tapping into our dharma and purpose. Yeah. But also, what can we as leaders do to help people? Like if I'm running a business or if I'm managing a large team of people, I don't want the cycle as you described it. So if my goal is to find ways to retain people and retain people who are joyful about their work, yeah. what are the solutions as you see them? Yeah. Well, you know, so in Mila's case, she discovered it almost by accident. But it, the important thing there was what is the essence of a job that you really do love, that you feel like you aspire to do, but you can't? And I think it's a really practical question for any of us to ask. Like for me, Mark, I kind of like a long time when I was running a technology company, I felt like I wanted to write and I wanted to do podcasting. I basically wanted the, the Mark Crowley lifestyle, but I was <laughs> running a company and raised money from investors. I had a team. We just had our first child and I felt trapped. But the idea behind, all right, well, well what is it about sort of, you know, writing that really appeals to me? And what is it about podcasting that really appeals to me? Ultimately, it came to storytelling. If I peeked below the titles into the essence, it was storytelling. And so I started to find ways to express myself as a storyteller inside my work. I started to dig way more into what are our customers' tales, what were the anecdotes that were coming from the people that we were serving, and how do I spread that to my investors and to my board and to my team. And I took that role on on a daily basis and made it a much bigger part of who I was at work. And when that happened, I found myself coming alive in a new way. The other thing that I think that we can do practically, I mean, there's a list of things inside the book that we can use as these chisels to sort of come back to the sculpture that's inside. The other one is really kind of identifying these bright spots in your day. What are these tiny little moments that are actually bringing you joy? You know, there was a nurse that I talk about in the book named Karen Struck, and she was well down the path of being a nurse. She was the head of an ER unit inside a really busy hospital, but sort of looked back on the days when she had majored in literature and loved literature and somehow took a different path in her life because she felt like it would be much more practical to go into medicine and nursing than it would to be a writer. But the way that she kind of came back into her dharma was through the bright spots of patient paperwork, like literally patient paperwork, where other nurses would fill out the clinical details of a patient and hit print because that's what most people did. She started to take her time with this patient paperwork. And she would talk about who the patient was, who do they love, what do they care about at home. And she would almost tell these illustrative stories about each patient. And this paperwork started to get passed around the hospital from doctors and nurses, like almost like little novellas because they were so interesting. And that was the way that she came back into her dharma was through this other role. Now, she didn't leave her job. She was still a nurse. 
She continued to be a nurse for a long time, but it was through these bright spots in her day that she was able to invest a little bit more. And so I think that usually when people are not happy with their job, one of the first questions I will ask is, well, what are those little moments, those little diamonds in the rough where you are actually happy? What are these moments that give you little bits of joy? Because not only do those tend to be moments that we can double down on, and do more with and even sort of create more of in our day. But also those tend to be little glimpses into what our essence might be. It tends to be something that, you know, you might want to invest more into and ultimately over time start to bring more of that into your life. Could be through a different job, but it also could be the job you have right now. So I'm curious as to whether or not you think that this not recognizing what you call the little moments the joyful moments that really give you a sense that life is good while you're doing it. So is that, in your opinion, the principal reason why so many people are looking for jobs and cycling in and out of jobs? In other words, Sunil, what are they looking for? Pin that down. I think you already have, before we go forward, I just really want to make sure that we have that crystallized in everybody's minds that this is the problem that we're trying to solve for. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem that we're trying to solve for ultimately is a sense of fulfillment. Some people call this purpose. Some people call this calling. I'm calling it dharma. And I think ultimately it is this thing inside of us that wants to be fulfilled and it's not. I think benefits, compensation, all that, that stuff matters. And if you don't feel like you're being paid fairly, all that stuff certainly matters. But what we're also finding is that people are getting to a point where they have enough benefits, they have enough pay, and they're still not happy. And that happens all the time. And I think that's where it leads us to the sense of like, I'm just not fulfilled in my work. I'm not finding that sense of daily joy. Or I think it's a sense of meaning in what it is that we are doing. And so I do think that the art of Dharma is really about aligning who we are with what we do. And so I think the mistake that we can make, though, is in feeling like it has to come through these big sweeping changes. We have to rip off the Band-Aid and make a huge alteration in our career in order to live our Dharma. That can happen, but the challenge is that for a lot of us, that isn't always possible, or it isn't always sort of the kind of thing that we necessarily need to do in order to be closer to who we are. It can come through little changes as well. And one of the ways that we can recognize what those little changes are are through these bright spots in our day. What are the little moments that are actually bringing us joy? Even if you are in a moment or in a a job that isn't giving you the happiness, what are those tiny diamonds in the rough? Because I think that even moments of misery can be great sort of data sets. I think these times of misery can also sort of be, I think, really indicative and helpful in understanding what is it that truly is bringing you joy? So you've done a really great job of explaining what we can do individually. And actually, there's more in your book that I'm going to dig into in a second around that. If you were, let's just say you were talking to 100 CEOs from Fortune 500 companies, and they invited you and they said, hey, Sunil, there's been all this discussion in the last few years around people wanting a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of fulfillment. Yeah. And there's all sorts of evidence that in the post-pandemic environment era that we're living in, that these needs are greater than they've ever been. Like people had plenty of time to reflect upon their lives and said, I'm not getting enough meaning out of my life. I don't feel like I'm fulfilling my own purpose through the work that I'm doing. Mm. So that's the premise by which you've been asked to come in. And my question to you is, 
What do you tell these CEOs? What do they need to do and what do they need their individual managers to do in order to support the people that are working for them along those lines? Yeah. So I think part of what we need to acknowledge as well is that there are things that bring us further into our purpose and into our dharma. And there are also things that take us away. And one of the first places I would begin is that when we're exhausted, we can feel a sense of purposelessness right away. You know, like I work with a lot of people through my role at Harvard Medical School. I talk to a lot of first responders in my job who are filled with purpose in their lives, but they don't feel it on a day-to-day basis because they just feel really, really tired. And I think that's one thing that as leaders, we need to spend more time thinking about right now, because I think what we've been trained to, I think, manage in for the most part is time. We manage our time. We manage other people's time. We manage the number of hours we put on a different project or a certain task, but we aren't as focused on energy. And one of the things I've realized in my work is that now I've gone out and I've studied hundreds of leaders. This is how I spent the past 10 years from people who have led in art and investing in business from Oscar winning filmmakers to leaders of professional sports teams. And what I've realized is that if you compare people who are able to build momentum in, in their lives and in their careers versus those who fizzle out, the people who fizzle out very rarely do they run out of time or talent. What they almost always run out of is energy. They simply just don't have enough gas in the tank to keep doing what they're doing. And I think it's something as leaders we now have to really be watching out for for our people is where are people energetically right now? Not just how much time they're putting in their tasks, how much time they're spending on Slack and whether they're active, but like where is their energy level? Because that is not something that we have been trained to do. I think one of the most important chapters, I think, in the book is what we call prana. And prana is the sense of energy that we bring to our dharma, that we bring to our purpose. And when we look at high-performing leaders and also performers across all different industries, they're not waiting for vacations or long breaks in order to take moments of rest. They're taking frequent focus breaks every single day. In fact, the average high performer is taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day which I know sounds extraordinary, right? Given the world that we live in, like it seems like we're back to back to back, like we're clicking off of one link, clicking onto another. But the model that I offer in the book that I think any of us can incorporate for ourselves and for our teams is what I call the 55-5 model, 55-5, which is that for every 55 minutes of work, you're taking five minutes of focused, deliberate rest whenever possible. And you're doing that for your team as well. Instead of having a 60-minute meeting, you're taking a 55-minute meeting and you're setting the example of, hey, I'm going to be taking this five minutes to take a walk or sip on a cup of coffee. And that's the thing about the five minutes is you could be really be doing anything. You could be meditating if that's your thing. You could be doing push-ups, jumping jacks if that's your thing. And I think that for somebody listening right now, you might be thinking, well, look, I'm already strapped as is with time. And what you're telling me to do is to shrink each hour. But what the science and the data is telling us is that every single one of those five minutes is going to make the other 55 minutes far more effective, far more productive, far more energetic. And when you're in that state, it is also much more palatable for you to start thinking about what's going right with your job and start to double down on that. When you're not in that state, though, when you're exhausted, it becomes almost impossible to feel a sense of purpose in what you do. So again, one of the greatest things I think we can do as leaders when it comes to helping our people find purpose and energy and meaning in their work is by focusing on this idea of the exhaustion that everybody is facing and starting to find ways that we can kind of lift people out of that. 
Just out of curiosity, when you mentioned this to people that we'll just say executives, top leaders, CEOs, are they curious about this or do they kind of like wave you off? Like, I don't want to get caught up in managing people's energy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know, I'm wondering I, I what's do. the degree of cynicism to this? Because I think you're spot on. I have another question related to this, but I'm interested just to see if people are responsive to this. Yeah, well, I think it's mixed because I think that it's much easier to manage time and it's straightforward for us to look at how many hours somebody is putting towards a task. It's much more straightforward for us to sort of monitor whether somebody is sitting at their desk. It's harder. It's more emotional. It's leading from the heart, right, Mark, where we have to start kind of examining people and where they are energetically. And oftentimes we sort of shy away from things that we don't know how to do, right? But I think that if the past, I mean, I'd say pre-pandemic, but certainly the past few years have taught us anything, is that this is where the world is heading. We can't be looking at people as a bundle of skill anymore, and we have to be looking at people as human beings, right? And those leaders that don't want to do that, I believe, are going to get washed out over the coming years. And those that actually lean into this and actually start to embrace this idea that, look, we are human beings at the center, and we happen to be showing up at work, and the best way to do our best work is to show up as our best selves. Those who believe in that and I think embrace that and start to build skill around that are going to rise. And so I think that to answer your question, you know, you do find people who sort of tune this message out and say, I know what I know and I'm going to focus on what I know. But I think more so than ever before, I'm finding leaders, executives, people who I wouldn't have thought would be embrace this message coming to my talks. I've been sort of speaking now to larger and larger audiences. The book is doing really, really well. It's selling to people who had never heard the word Dharma before. And I think it's because everybody understands that the way that we have been working is no longer working. Well, I'm sending you a virtual hug because <laughs> I'm in complete agreement with you. And I'll also say that it's been a long time coming. The resistance which is why I asked you the question in the first place, was really just to gauge whether or not people are open to this. Because we've never really focused on energy, but we've also never really focused on the fact that we're managing human beings and that humans have fundamental needs that we've never thought to address because we didn't think it was important and now it's become essential. But I'm wondering now, based on everything that you've said, that everybody listening all around the world is nodding their heads to you because you're speaking to the converted here, you know. Do you feel that organizations in the environment that we're living in now with technology at our availability and we can be on 24-7 if we chose to or felt that we needed to, what's your opinion about establishing boundaries? So... Let me just be clear here. Telling people, I don't expect you to be responding to anything that I send out or anybody else does between these hours. If you choose to, that's entirely up to you. But there's no pressure to do that. There's no expectation. There's no special reward for the guy that responded to my email at one o'clock in the morning. But giving people the sense of freedom that when they're at dinner 
they can be there with their family and that they don't need to be looking at their phone to see if they have to hop on a call or respond to a quick text. Yeah. So particularly with your medical background, I'm interested in what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I think I would take it one step further, which is that if you're a leader who is sending messages at that time Mm -hmm. to say to people, hey, listen, no need for a response. And yet I am emailing you right now or yet I am. Mm -hmm. I am slacking you right now. I think sends a mixed message. And I think that the question that I think anybody who is listening needs to ask themselves is, sure, it does reduce our own anxiety to get things off of our plate, right? When we have something on our mind, we want to make sure that it's out there and that we sort of like, we get it off of our schedule and off of our sort of plate to say, to do something about it, take action with it. But when you do that, you are asking somebody implicitly to respond to that, right? You're putting it on their plate. And the question is, what time of day are you really doing that? And was that necessary? And sometimes it might be. But I think that for me as a leader, I did adopt that sort of, hey, you know, I'm sending out messages at all hours of the day. But by the way, like you should feel free to create your boundaries And ultimately, I realized that was bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because like, no, I'm on. And if I'm on, then somebody else feels the pressure to be on. If I'm sending emails, then somebody else is going to feel the pressure to send emails. One of the greatest tools that I began to use was to set sort of a time of day that I wanted to send an email to postpone and delay the time in which that email was sent out. That way I could actually, you know... Via scheduler, you mean? or scheduler. Okay. Via scheduler, yep. So for me, realizing that like, yeah, I had a backlog of stuff that I needed to get out there. And so usually I would find myself, you know, after dinner, after the kids were put down, getting to email because it was just the lifestyle that I was I was in at that time. But instead of sending it out in the wee hours of night and setting the expectation that other people should be online at that time, I would schedule them to go out the next morning at a normal time. Now, look, every once in a while, something is urgent. And if it's truly urgent, then okay, something's blowing up. In our case, we had a one-on-one health coaching service called Rise, and it was an app-based coaching model. And and every once in a while, there would be like, you know, a bug or something that would come up where the app was just completely unusable, in which case I would call somebody and say, listen, we have an issue right now. It truly is urgent. But I would save those things. And for everything else, I would try to set an example of, hey, this is happening in normal working hours. If you're receiving a message or a communication from me, it's during a period of time where I think it's kind of reasonable that you would be expecting it. But if it's after hours and it's not urgent, I'm going to time delay it. I mean, just to punctuate this, everything that you've been talking about for the last six or seven minutes is is really just demonstrating that you care about people. Like you can see that there are moments where it's inappropriate. I have someone I know who is a senior leader in a company sends emails out Saturday morning and it's like, it frees him. Yeah. And you can imagine you're sitting there having your coffee. You're all alone. You don't have to be in the office. You might be in your pajamas and you're like, okay, these are the things that are on my mind and I want to get this out there. And, and I, I told him, I said, it's probably the worst thing you could possibly do. Like Saturday morning is when they want to be in their pajamas and their coffee without work and not having to respond to you. And I think you made that point very, very clear that even in your own experience that you had to kind of come to your own epiphany that this is bullshit. Like that's 
can't do that. Yeah. But when you don't do it, it affects people. People are grateful for it because they're like, okay, I'm free. It's Saturday morning and I don't need to worry about that unless the system's down. So well I done. I'm really grateful for all of this. I'm glad we're going down this road. I just want to add one thing to this, which is like I often get asked by leaders, hey, like, all right, I'm on board with this idea that work and well-being aren't as separate as we once made them out to be, right? Because work does affect your well-being and your well-being does affect your work. And so if they're so intimately connected that I'm sort of on board now with the idea that, you know, we need well-being in our lives in order to be the performers that we want to be. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to encourage people to do that. I'm going to encourage people to take breaks. I'm going to encourage people to take vacations. And that's what I'm going to do as a leader. And that is fine. However, the next step is also for people to see you doing that as well, right? You have to model the behavior that you want to see. Because if the message that I'm receiving is one of your sort of, I'm ambitious and I'm on your team and we are a workforce, even though right now we're going through a tricky time, the vast majority of us are ambitious. We do have goals. And if I'm ambitious and I'm on your team and I'm seeing you behave a certain way as a leader, there is a big part of me that says you should be emulating that behavior. Right. And so you could be telling me as a leader anything you want. You could be saying, I want you taking vacations. I want you doing this stuff. But if I'm seeing you work all hours of the night and I'm seeing you send emails on a Saturday or Sunday, you're modeling the behavior that ultimately tells me that is the way to get ahead. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Let's go back to essence. You say that most of us tend to view ourselves through the eyes of others and that we believe we are what they see and that drives us to make choices that then are inherently misaligned to who we are. So I hope I summarized that correctly. Beautifully. Okay. So tell us about personal essence and how we can discover it as a means to making choices that line up to who we are naturally. And I imagine courage comes into this, but how do we have a stronger sense of self and the willingness to make decisions that align to who we know deep inside of ourselves is who we need to be and where we want to go? I think one of the best parts of, I think, writing this book has been sort of going back to the cultural roots of Dharma and the origin of it, but it's also been going to modern day stories, the stories that we're much more familiar with here in the West of leaders that we admire and realizing that a lot of them were scared as well. A lot of them did not have the courage naturally to do what they did. If you look at even like a classic example, like a Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, we sort of see him as a man up at a podium who is speaking to hundreds of thousands of people with vigor and with enthusiasm and energy. But the people who were around him would describe him very, very differently behind the scenes. He was scared. He didn't know what was next. He had a lot of uncertainty and doubt. And the message I think that we sort of sometimes receive by only seeing him as the man at the podium is that we have to muster up enough courage in our lives. And once we've mustered up enough courage in our lives, we take action. But I think if we examine enough people who've done things that have changed the world, we realize that they didn't wait for courage in order to take action. They took action and they waited for courage to catch up along the way. Parse that out a little bit. I remember reading that in your book and thinking, okay, how does one do that? Yeah. Because you think you need courage to dive off the high dive, right? You feel like you have to muster that. You're walking right. back and forth on the plank and you're like, do I, don't I, do I, don't I? How yeah. does that work for you? I think part of it is we sort of tend to see the acts in our life as a sort of a map, right? And we need a map 
in order to kind of take the next step, meaning that we need to know the last step before we take that next step. And one of the mindset shifts that I think is really essential to Dharma is to shift from a map mentality to a compass mentality, which is what is the right next step right now? What do I need to do at this moment? I think the thing that is helpful and has been most helpful for me is to realize that most of those decisions, most of those steps are what, you know, Jeff Bezos would call a two-way door and they're not a one-way door, meaning that they are reversible decisions. If you walk through the door and you don't like what's on the other side, you ran the experiment and it didn't prove out to be the way you wanted it to be, you can always walk back through the door. And I think life is a bunch of two-way doors often sort of disguised as one-way doors. We sort of feel or kind of give the sort of gravity to the decision that if we walk through, we won't be able to walk back. But the reality is that most of the things that we have in our lives are two-way doors. And if we start to see that for what it is, in some ways, we don't muster the courage, we lower the bar. We lower the bar behind, you know, what would happen if I did it and it didn't work? And I think when we can start to lower the bar we can start to take action more freely and effectively. I think the thing that I've learned, Mark, is that like there tend to be three words that hold us back from what we want in life. And I think those three words are, I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. I'm not ready to step into that leadership role. I'm not ready to speak my mind. I'm not ready to run with that idea. I'm not ready. Maybe someday I'll be ready, but I'm not ready right now. And as we know, time accelerates. It goes by faster and faster. And eventually we find ourselves on sort of the tail end of, I wish I would. I wish I would have done that thing, but I don't have any time anymore. And, you know, the thing that I've kind of realized after now having spent all these years studying people who I think have reached the top of their game, they've done extraordinary things, is is very few of them were actually ready to do what they did. Three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. Two bagel shop entrepreneurs were not ready to become Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> a 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden, was not ready to become an environmental leader. Mm-hmm. But you know, today Greta Thunberg has been nominated for three Nobel Prizes. You know, she's a teenager. She's not. She wasn't ready to do what she did. But I think in every case, what you find is that they weren't waiting for courage in order to take action. They were taking action and letting courage catch up along the way. I don't know about you, but particularly early in my career, like if you're going through a job interview and the interviewer says, so Mark, what's your five-year plan? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking about that question. I'm thinking how preposterous it is because yeah. like, who could possibly know where their life is going to be in five years? You might have a general idea of what you might hope to do, but one of the things that in reading the section in your book that we're talking about I early on was asked to do like, hey, would you be interested in like doing a pilot? Would you like to run the team that's doing something? We've never done this before. What do you think? And at one point, somebody said to me, we don't know what we will do with you if it doesn't work. Like, we're going to take you and we're going to put you into this new role. And if you (laughs) sign up for it and it doesn't really work for us, I don't know what we're going to do. So we're giving you no guarantees of the future. And I was like, sign me up. I'll take this. Yeah. And it's connected to everything we're talking about because I realized about myself that played out for the rest of my career was that I love doing things no one else is doing. I love being on the innovation side and trying new things and experimenting. If on some intuitive level, I think, wait a minute, this has huge potential and I think I could do it. So I figured out my purpose early on and magically had people offering me these crazy assignments. 
but it never would have matched up to A to B, B to C, D to E, five-year plan. Yeah, and what I love about that too is like this essence of wanting to do things differently, but wanting to experiment with how things could be changed. It seems like it's manifested itself in all these different ways for you. In other words, like, you know, with your books and with your podcast and also with your work and with your coaching, because sometimes we can see sort of our essence as a one-to-one relationship with an expression, right? Meaning that like, I understand this about myself, but there's only one way to express that. And what I love about your story is like, it's proof that like, while we may have this one thing, this one essence that really taps into who we are, there are many, many ways to express that over time. I absolutely love that. Going back to what you said a while ago about these little moments, on perhaps more of an unconscious level than conscious, I think I started to cobble those together Mm. and say, hey, what's another little moment? What's another little moment? And then starting to realize, wait a minute, like that made a bigger moment. And I like that. So how do I get more bigger moments? Yeah. And so that's kind of how it's unfolded. And it's illustrative for everything you're talking about. I think that's right. No, absolutely. And so much of it comes, I think, back to awareness. It's being aware at a deeper level of what it is that is bringing you joy. Because usually when you're caught up in a miserable experience, there still will be these tiny little flecks, these tiny little moments that are giving you something. And I think if we can tune into those, they can be the gateways to something really great. I'm not sure that this is the right time to ask you this question, but it's something that when I think people hear about purpose, they think, oh, I was born to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I was born to, you know, right? It's, it's sort of this fixed nature. And one of the things you're really clear about is that it can change. Yeah. So that's sort of paradoxical. So I thought I need to have you pin that down. Yeah. I think we have an essence and then we have ways to express that essence. And when we pin our purpose to an occupation, like I need to be a doctor, that is a really fixed way of saying like it is what it is and it's never going to change. And if I didn't go down the path of being a doctor, well, then I'm out of my dharma. I'm out of my purpose. I'm not living a purposeful life. If we go beneath, though, the occupation of doctor and into what is the essence that I love about that, it could be that I love nurturing people. I love taking care of people. And there are many, many ways to express that. Doctor is one of them, but what are the others? And what's happening right now in my life, what's happening in my own backyard, what's happening in my own community, what's happening in my own job, that's going to allow me to express that right now, right where I am. And there are different ways that we can start to bring more of who we are into what we do. Dharma is about alignment. It's not about ripping a Band-Aid off and all of a sudden you're full scale into your Dharma. It's about these little alignments, but these little alignments can make a huge, huge difference. You know, like Toni Morrison, the Nobel Prize winning author, she had two kids. She was a single mom. She had a full-time job. She would take the bus to and from work. But what she would talk about is how throughout the day she was writing on little scraps of paper. Anytime she had an idea, she'd pull a little scrap of paper and she would write it down. She'd write down for just a couple minutes at a time. And there was those little scraps of paper that ended up forming paragraphs and eventually pages and eventually chapters and eventually books. So I think we can start to think about what are these little scraps of paper in our own lives, right? Where are these little moments where we can start to express a little bit more of who we are and what we do? If you wanted to be a doctor, but you're now, I don't know, an analyst inside a, a firm, 
the nurturing side of you can still come out. Mm -hmm. That essence of you can still come out through your work in the way that you relate to your team, in the way that you relate to your customer, in the way that you relate to the mission of the company, and also, of course, the way you relate to your community and your family. We can start to bring out that nurturer side of you through everything that you do. I want to go back to the unhappiness that people have and the cycle that we were talking about, because you tell the story in your book about your uncle, Harkrishan. Yeah, Harkrishan. Harkrishan. And yep. it had to do with dealing with the discomforts of our work lives, including dealing with overbearing bosses and passive aggressive coworkers and people that are hard to please. And I thought his advice for how to respond to these kinds of triggers was really great. Yeah. What Harkrishna Uncle told me is that we can run away from the pain or we can find comfort in the discomfort. Those are our options. But if you run away from the pain, in some ways you are running away from your dharma because just because you are living a purposeful life or just because you find something that you love to do doesn't all of a sudden mean that the irritations of life disappear. It doesn't mean the struggles of life disappear. In fact, we all know that difficult roads are often the ones that lead to beautiful destinations, right? And so sometimes we have to throw ourselves into the discomfort and the key isn't escaping it. It's finding ways to find comfort in discomfort. And, and for me, Har Uncle was, he was the teacher that I needed to, I think, impart this lesson. And he gave it to me when I was a teenager and I was living in an all white suburb and I had brown skin and I was getting picked on a lot. He gave me sort of this tip of like, you know, you can literally do something as simple as in this moment of discomfort when everybody around you is being mean, you can put your hand on your chest and you can find just a little bit of love for yourself. Even if you're not experiencing love on the outside, you can give it to yourself right now. You can go right here because nobody can touch you when you're right here. He said, pointing to my chest, pointing to my heart, mm -hmm. right? And this is mine. And I think bullying in high school turns into irritating coworkers, turns into all these other things that we have in our lives. We never really escape that just because we get older. And one of the things that I found to be fascinating is when I started to study people who I expected to be completely equanimous in their lives, like, you know, Tibetan monks, I expected to find that they were people who judged anger and would say that anger is a really bad thing. But even like Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a Vietnamese monk who was nominated for Nobel Prizes, said, like, I have a lot of anger inside of me. And the idea in life isn't to remove your anger or remove the explosives that are inside of you. But the idea is to build a longer wick, so from the moment that the wick is lit, something irritates you, you are creating more space between the point that the bomb actually goes off. And there are little things that we can do to extend the length of that fuse, to extend the length of that wick. Mm -hmm. Viktor Frankl talked a lot about this in Man's Search for Meaning, right? He said the distance between something that irritates you and your response to it inside that space is our freedom. So if there is no space, if something irritates you and you, you react right away, you're not free. But if you can start to expand that space, even if it's one millimeter at a time, you can start to regain your freedom. And one of the ways that we can do that is by finding what I call a home base. And this home base is some physical or mental gesture that you do in these moments of discomfort. And for me, again, I do what Hare Krishna Uncle taught me to do when I was a teenager, which is I still put my hand on my chest. If I'm feeling uncomfortable in a moment and I feel like I want to unload on it, 
I will put my hand on my chest and I'll give myself that length, that sort of extension of the wick. Some people like to go to a mental image. It could be a place you really enjoyed as a child. It could be the thought of petting, you know, your dog or your cat, like something that really kind of gives you that moment of comfort. If we can extend that fuse literally just by a little bit, we all of a sudden start to gain choices in our life. We start to get awareness of like, here are the different ways that we can respond. And it's in those different ways we can respond that ultimately gives us our freedom. It's a beautiful, it's a, I'll call it a tool. It's a beautiful concept, what he taught you, but it's actually a really great tool. So thank you for sharing that. Sunil, we're going to stop here for a quick departure from our conversation and move into a podcast tradition that we call the heartbeat round. So the goal really is just to get to know you more personally. So I'm going to ask you about a dozen questions that this time I want you to answer instinctively, quickly, cleverly, (laughs) in a heartbeat. (laughs) All right. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. Something important you explicitly learned while writing your book. That consistency matters much more than anything else. Just spending a little time each day writing is the key to getting a book done. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? That energy matters just as much as time. Trait you most admire in other people. Empathy. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. I think if we're not careful, we're going to start to lose even more of our sense of presence with one another. Author or philosopher who has most influenced your leadership thinking? Uh, Ram Das, Harvard professor who, mm-hmm. who turned to philosophy and Eastern ways of thinking. Be here now. Yep. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Uh, attention. People giving each other enough attention. One book you believe everyone should read? The Alchemist, Paulo Coelho. Your synonym for the word heart? Love. Something you'd really like to see changed in the world? I'd like to see us being more compassionate towards one another. The activity that makes you come alive? Being with my kids. Leader of any era you most admire? I think I have a guess. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to go back to Mahatma Gandhi on this. Mm -hmm. And the quality that derails the most leadership careers? Selfishness. Very, very good. These were very concise, very quick, and very effective. So thanks for going through this with me. Thanks, Mark. That was great. Quickly, I have another question for you. I have lots of questions that just keep popping into my head here. And then I'm like, oh, I need to get to this one. I want to get, uh, I'm not normally like that, but it's just, I'm intrigued by all of this. And I, I'm sure my, my audience is as well. But you mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita, the ancient Hindu spiritual text, that when we turn our attention away from serving ourselves to serving others, we're immediately transported into the heart of Dharma. Mm-hmm almost summarizing what I think is the concept of karma. You say that when we sacrifice our personal benefit, the irony is that we end up being showered with status and rewards. So this is sort of another ring the bell leadership specific question. Tell us why it's so important. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. That was Mahatma Gandhi. And, you know, Mahatma Gandhi was probably in a lot of ways the person who sort of embodied the Bhagavad Gita more than anybody else. 
But it was a sense of service that really made him the leader that he was. And it wasn't for the obvious reasons, though. It wasn't because servant leadership was sort of the the mantra that he started with from the beginning. Mahatma Gandhi was very timid, you know, as a child and as a teenager and eventually as a lawyer. In fact, he was so shy that he realized that he could not argue court cases. He ended up abandoning his first case right on the spot because he was sweating through his clothes. And a lot of people are surprised to hear this story because they kind of see Mahatma Gandhi as this guy who's leading hundreds of thousands of people in these marches and speaking valiantly from a podium. And But that wasn't who he was naturally. What ended up flipping the switch for him was really this sense of service. If I can get myself out of my own head and I can start to put myself into the place of the people that I'm serving, well, then I can come alive in a brand new way. It gives me a lot more courage to do what I want to do. And one of the ways that we talk about this in the book is what I call the spotlight switch. Oftentimes, it can seem like when you're a leader, like the spotlight is on you. You know, you're going into a meeting and everybody's asking you what you think and what's the agenda and or you get on stage and everybody's hearing you speak and the spotlight is on you. But Mahatma Gandhi would very deliberately, almost in his mind, switch the spotlight from himself to the people that he was trying to serve. He would literally almost like imagine the spotlight would be just turned to his audience, to his teams, to his people. And by doing that, it not only sort of made him lead from a purer place, which we know is sort of the heart of leadership in the first place. But it also made him come alive. It gave him the courage to be able to speak the way that he spoke. There's a purity to it that I think ultimately cannot be faked. You know, when you are truly in a space of service, it does end up showering you with the riches because you tend to sort of be the kind of person that other people want to follow. You tend to be the kind of person who comes alive in a way that we associate with success. And so you do find people who will come from this place of service. They have found themselves in the service of others that ultimately do rise to the top. But I don't think you can game the system, meaning you can't fake service because you know that service is a way of getting to the top because I don't think it actually works that way. Well, just to punctuate this notion of purpose, I think anyone who's in a leadership role who can't find great joy in seeing other people thrive, other people succeeding, growing, contributing, a broad sense of success, if you can't find that in yourself, then leadership probably isn't your purpose, you know, because I think they go hand in hand. I think that is the greatest joy that... It's not in, well, we hit 100 million widgets last month or whatever. It's how am I affecting the lives of other people in the most positive way while still driving that performance? So I want to leave it there, Sunil, on behalf of my audience. This is a very wide-ranging conversation, not entirely what I expected, which I love. And so thank you so very much. Mark, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. find our podcast valuable and would love to help us spread our message more widely in the world, there are lots of ways you can support us. Recommend us to all of your friends and colleagues. Buy a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart, for yourself and maybe some copies for your team. Invite me to come speak at your organization, wherever you are in the world. The truth is, we really need our community support, and so I thank you in advance. I want to applaud my team, including Ken Boynton, Kerry Finnessy, Randy Yon, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And I want to thank Chevron, all of its leaders around the world, and especially to CHRO, Rhonda Morris, for believing so strongly in our mission. 
And finally, great thanks go to you for listening. We produce this show with love for you and hope you'll keep tuning in. Our theme song is Take the A Train, a jazz standard written in 1939 by Billy Strayhorn that was the signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And now I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you leave from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.